0: It is good to be back, good to be back. I do want you to know that um, it's been four months, or almost, almost four months, so if I go a little bit long today, there's a lot stored up in here that I haven't been able to give you, okay? So, anyway, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter six. Pastor Grant has been so very kind to invite me to come and preach, but also to let me have one of my favorite passages of scripture to preach to you, and so we're jumping a little bit ahead in the sermon series that you're currently in, but we're going to be looking at verses 10 down to verse 20 together this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to begin our reading together in verse 10. And it's so good to see you guys. So All right. Paul writes and he says, "Finally, be strong in the Lord, Father, we give this time to you this morning, and we ask that you, through your Spirit, would speak clearly through the Apostle Paul. We pray that you would give us understanding. We pray, Father, that we would be mindful of this spiritual conflict that we are in as a church. That lurking around us, Lord, there are spiritual entities that wish us harm, but because of your grace and because of your Spirit, We are victorious. And so God, help us to understand what Paul is saying in regards to the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I want to talk to you just for a moment about a failed armor exchange. There's a story in the Old Testament that we find about uh, this young man who was a shepherd and his name was David. And David had heard about a a battle that was taking place. We all know the story. It typically ends with a giant on his back and his head being removed. But in this story, one of the things that we quickly move past is this armor exchange that takes place. David, after he kind of has some verbal sparring with his brothers, ends up going to the king's tent. And there is King Saul, and King Saul is there with all of his armor, and he begins to try and put this armor on this young man. The armor doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It's too large. The sword's unwieldy. The, the shield's too heavy. He can't actually do what he needs to do in battle because the armor just isn't the right size for him. It, it's not fit for him. Our text here this morning in Ephesians chapter 6 is a beautiful correction to that story. In our text today, the king's armor fits perfectly. It fits us completely. The sword is is perfectly balanced for every hand. The shield is just the right size for every situation. Even the helmet itself sits perfectly upon our heads. And so from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet, the armor fits with precision and strength. And so as we look at this text, I want us to see that there is spiritual conflict if we're going to be equipped for this conflict that we are in as a church paul reveals for us in this text four clues that will enable us to be victorious and the first one is that we we must know the source of our strength we must know the source of our strength secondly we must know the identity of our enemy third we must commit ourselves to an unwavering kind of obedience And then fourthly, we must clothe ourselves in Christ. So if we look at this passage of Scripture, it's very important, when we look at Ephesians chapter 6, if we don't have a complete or at least a full understanding of the spiritual conflict that is taking place in the Bible and as a result in the world, then I don't think that we can have a very good understanding of Ephesians 6. And so what I want to do just for a moment, if you'll bear with me, is to provide some context to this spiritual war so that we can have a better understanding of what's taking place in Ephesians chapter six. Sometimes when we read through the book of Ephesians, we're reading through these really rich passages of scripture and Paul is talking about all kinds of wonderful things. And we get to Ephesians chapter six and you're just kind of like, "Okay, Paul, what in the world? It's like a shock at the very end. I mean, he's been talking about all kinds of wonderful things, about Christian-Jewish unity. He's been talking about our new identity in Christ. He's talked about wisdom and how to approach life. He's talked about relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters. And then all of a sudden, he just like throws in this spiritual warfare business. And you're like, I didn't see that one coming. That was a surprise, Paul. That was a surprise. Now, what Paul is doing in this letter is very important. He's discussing this concept of supernatural war and he's closing the letter in the very same way that he actually started the letter. In fact, this entire letter to the Ephesians, there is this interwoven theme of spiritual warfare that most of the time we don't recognize, we don't see it. So I want you to come back with me to the very beginning of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter one, there is a prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians. In fact, if I if you were to look at my Bible, in the margin of the Bible, it says, remember JBC. Because this is a prayer that I often pray for you. He prays for the Ephesians that they would be given spiritual wisdom. He prays that they, they would have spiritual discernment. He prays that they would fully grasp the hope provided by the gospel, that they would be strengthened by the certainty of God's promise found in the gospel. And, and then he also... He he focuses in on the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And it's that power in particular that he says in verse 20 that he worked, God works in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, focus on this. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Now I want you to notice some of those key words there. Paul uses uh, these words to describe this supernatural battle that we're in. He says that Jesus has been seated. He's been enthroned, that's what he's saying. He's been enthroned above all spiritual and human rulers. He reigns in heaven over everything. Now, notice all of these terms. This is really important. He says, all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. And he says, and above every name that is named. Paul's describing something here that's much more significant than just simply human governments. We look at, like, Philippians chapter uh, 2. Paul says that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This language that Paul is using about these rules and and dominions and power and authority and so on, uh, these words, it's not just repetition. I think that's what we think sometimes. Maybe Paul just got on a kick with his thesaurus and he's just repeating the same kind of concept over and over. That's not what he's doing. These these are particular words. They are specific words. And they refer to the angelic powers, both good and bad. We see this in other places. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 8. He says that nothing can separate us from God. And he goes on, he says neither angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers can separate us from God. Peter uses this language in 1 Peter chapter three. He says that Jesus reigns in heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Ephesians chapter three, which we'll get to in just a little bit, he talks about these rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And then Colossians, Colossians chapter one and verse 16 in this great Christ hymn. It says that Jesus is supreme over all of it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All were created through him and for him. So Jesus has been raised by the power of God and is seated as king over all authorities. Visible and invisible. So That's what's happening with Jesus. What's happening with us? What does that mean for us? Well, we have to remember who we are. Look at Ephesians two. In Ephesians two, again, beautiful passage. I think Ephesians is probably one of my favorite books. Ephesians two, verse one, Paul starts out and he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, next phrase, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he goes on and he talks about where we are without Christ. We are under the dominion of Satan. But then we get to verse six. The gospel clearly presented to us faith, repentance, we are saved. And he says, and when we are made alive together with Christ, we are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, so notice, we were once under the dominion of the demonic powers, but now we have been raised and seated with Jesus. He's given us this delegated authority to to awaken the nations to the kingdom of God, to push back the darkness and to declare God's rule over all peoples. Paul continues with his explanation of this unseen realm by addressing God's plan for the church. You look at chapter 3 in Ephesians. He says we, uh, we see Paul talking about uh, the purpose of the church even. And he says that, 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 that the plan or the, the mystery hidden for ages in God has now been revealed through the church. He says the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. This is a huge deal. This is the whole thing. This is the story of the Bible, what God is doing in the world. He's declaring his victory over all things. Now, so when we think about these rulers, these authorities, these powers, these authorities, the the principalities, and so on and so forth, who are these folks, right? Psalm 82 is is a really helpful scripture for us to look at, to give us a little bit of context about who these people or who these beings might be. Psalm 82 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. This is a courtroom set up. There's this moment where there is this ingathering of spiritual beings, it seems. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. And he says to these Gods. He says to these spiritual beings, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then he speaks about the human beings. He says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then he turns back to these spiritual beings and he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, says the psalmist. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That's probably one of those psalms that you didn't read when you were going through your psalm study, right? What is happening here? These supernatural beings that the psalmist refers to are spoken, over, spoken of over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They're called various things, given various labels. Sons of God, we see that in the book of Job. Uh, we see that in, in Genesis chapter six. Spirits, holy ones, angels, angels. In particular, in Genesis chapter 6, we see these sons of God, these supernatural beings abandoning the place that they were, they were given by God, and they, they took wives for themselves and had children, and, but then God judges them for this. And in uh, first P- or second Peter chapter 2, he says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into, it says in the English, hell, but the word's actually Tartarus, uh, or place of the dead, this waiting place for judgment. And he commits them to chains of gloomy darkness until the final judgment. Now, while some are imprisoned, it seems as though the scripture teaches us that others were not. And so these spiritual beings that have walked away from their allegiance to God are now taking up power and authority in this world, in the spiritual realm. Now, the whole world has a supernatural story. After the flood, God began his work of calling out for himself a people for his own inheritance. We hear this language a lot in the Old Testament and that through Jesus, God would reclaim the world for himself. Fallen angels were given authority over the nations by God, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32. We, we see this plan of God that's being orchestrated. So our Deuteronomy 32, it says, the most high gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. God chose for himself one people to bring about the restoration of the entire world. And friends, that's what we are. We are the means of God's strategic advance in this world against the supernatural powers. Do you remember what the psalmist said at the very end of, of Psalm 18 or 82? He said, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations. God's call to reach the nations that we've been given in, in Matthew 28. It's not just a call to bring individuals into his kingdom, it's it's also a kingdom push to conquer his enemies and strip them of their power and strip them of their authority and their inheritance. He's taking back what is rightfully his. This is what John sees in that beautiful vision that we talked about just a few months ago. Revelation chapter five, it says, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and every language. Every people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God that they shall reign on the earth. So, just to wrap up this little bit on context. I said I was gonna go long today. We haven't even touched the text yet, guys. Okay. Wrap it up, Ephesians chapter one. We, the church, have entrusted our lives to Jesus who is exalted over all demonic authority. Ephesians 2, we the church are made alive in Christ and raised to sit with Jesus above all demonic authority. Ephesians 3, we the church exist to show God's glory to the angelic authorities, both holy and unholy. Ephesians 6, we the church, we war against the demonic powers because of God's mission To reclaim the nations for himself. And so, I think it is apropos that I use a quotation at this point just for Dan Hall's sake. One of my favorite preachers, Dan, you're here. Charles Spurgeon. What would a a sermon by me be without a Charles Spurgeon quote? This is what he says He says, To be a Christian is to be a warrior. The good soldier of Jesus Christ must not expect to find ease in this world. It is a battlefield. Neither must he reckon upon the friendship of the world, for that would be enmity against God. His occupation is war. As he puts on, piece by piece, the panoply provided for him. That's armor, just in case you didn't know it. Thank you, Spurgeon. He may wisely say to himself, this warns me of danger, this prepares me for warfare, this prophesies opposition. And he says, to be a Christian is to be a warrior. So, as Cameron led us to this passage with the songs, and in that last song talking about the victory that we have in Christ, let's talk about how we can be victorious according to Paul. First, we must be victorious by knowing the source of our strength. We look back at the passage there, verse 10, look at the verse. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's three phrases that I want you to take notice of as we walk through this. The first one is finally. Now, it kind of sounds like Paul's wrapping up his letter, and he is to some degree. He's closing the, the letter out but it's not necessarily the complete meaning of that particular word it also carries this idea of from now on so this is, this is a this is a, a revelation of who we are this identity and he's saying from this point forward he's saying arm yourselves recognize the battle that you're in put on the warfare material paul is pulling us into this theme of spiritual warfare. The, the battle has begun and we will be constantly in conflict until the king returns. It's not something that just happens on occasion. This is going to be a constant conflict every single day when you wake up, when you go to work, when you go to school, there is a spiritual war in which you are entrenched. Whether you know it or not or whether you recognize it or not. He says, from now on, arm yourself." The next word he says be strong. He says be strong. Which means that God must be the source of all of our strength if we're going to be victorious. It's not our own. He must be the source of our power now and always. Every single day he must be our strength. We look back at John 15. If you remember John 15, Uh, Jesus uses this illustration of of a branch and he uses this illustration of a vine and he says, if you're connected with me, then you can do something. If you're not connected with me, if you don't have the life flowing for me, if there's no connection to the source of power, you will not be able to do anything, is what he says. So when we just try harder at life, or we just look at the mirror and we hate the person in the mirror and we scream at the mirror or we, we make that you know, really uncomfortable apology call or something like that or we, we put additional filters on the computer or, and all of those things may be well and good but if we do not humble ourselves to the point of recognizing that we do not contain the source of power we will continually fail. We must be strong but in the strength of his might. the next phrase that I want you to notice here is he says, in the Lord. We must be strong in the strength of his might. We must be strong in the Lord. It's only in Christ that we find this inner strength to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember back to Ephesians 4, verse one, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Friends, we cannot do that by ourselves. Christianity is not a solitary religion. You can't wake up and decide that you're just going to you know, go down this path by yourself and you're just gonna plug your way along and you're going to accomplish it and you're going to do all of this by yourself. No, it's, it's not a solitary religion. We're together in this. We must have one another, but we also, we most significantly must have God. We cannot do this by ourselves. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We're not strong enough. I mean, Satan's been doing this for a very long time. He's mastered his craft over the last several thousand years, and he knows exactly how to attack you. There's no adequate power within us to defend against the demonic hordes other than the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is this power that God gives to us. This power that, that awakened a broken corpse in the Jerusalem cave and, and God took and, and He resurrected this God man and He set him upon His throne over all things. That's the kind of power that is infused in you by the Holy Spirit. And Paul shows us the, the outworking of this power in 1st Corinthians chapter 10. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, though, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's saying it doesn't mean that you're never going to be tempted. It doesn't mean that you're ever going to not ever going to go into situations that are hard and difficult. In fact, you will constantly be going into situations that are difficult and that are tempting. He says, but in those moments, God provides because God is always faithful and God will give you the source of strength. He will give you the source of strength in your Christian community. He will give you the source of strength in his word. He will empower you by the spirit to overcome. So in order to be victorious, Paul says, we must understand in whom our source of power lies. Secondly, being victorious means that we must know the identity of our enemy. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, most of the time when we look at Ephesians chapter six, we can become very fixated on, you know, images of Roman Praetorian guards and such. But I think that there's two metaphors here that Paul is using. And I don't think that the Roman Praetorian guard is the first metaphor. I don't think that's the, I think that's the secondary metaphor. I think the first metaphor that he's using is very, very, very Jewish. It's almost like Remez, like we talked about months ago. Where where a rabbi would use an image or an idea and he would plant that image and idea in his lecture. And then the person that was listening to it would begin to think immediately about the entire context of that idea or that phrase. I think Paul is doing that. He is a Jew of Jews. Probably had the entire Old Testament memorized at this point. He knows the Bible and he's writing to people that are Jewish Or they're Gentiles, but they have a very good understanding of Jewish theology. Many of these people are related in the synagogue in some way. And so he's writing to these churches, this church in Ephesus. And I don't think that this first idea is going to be the Roman guard. I think he's looking at Yahweh himself, something very significant. We find this in Isaiah 59. He's already spoken of Jesus being this divine warrior. He's kind of clued us in that Jesus is a divine warrior king. Kind of leading up to this point to remind us of some passage that happened in Isaiah 59 that talks about Yahweh as the one who is this warrior king. Ephesians 4.8, you remember what he says. He says, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's not us. Those captives are not us. And we're the ones in the second phrase. He gave gifts to men. So he captured these who have turned away from him, these demonic forces, and he gives gifts to men. Now, I think that when you look at Psalm 82, which we talked about just a moment ago, Psalm 82, and then you look at Isaiah 59, and then you look at Ephesians chapter six, there is this incredible connection between all three of these passages. Now, remember Psalm 82. Remember the whole thing. Yahweh he meets with his divine counsel, these supernatural beings who are ruling unjustly over human beings. He tells them that they will be removed. He tells them that they will die. They're not like him. They're not eternal. He will destroy them because of their wickedness. And then he goes on, and the psalmist says, he ends it by calling upon Yahweh to bring judgment upon them and to reclaim the nations for himself. You remember? Okay. Now, look at Isaiah 59. Verse 14. It's the same theme of Yahweh's anger over the, the rampant injustice in the world. And here, the judgment becomes more clear. Verse 14, it says justice is turned back and, the, and righteousness stands far away. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? For truth has stumbled in the public square. An uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who depends from, from ev- departs from evil makes himself a prey. And it says the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. He says, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. Now, think about that in context with now Ephesians 6. Paul is saying that God has raised Jesus to life and seated him in the heavenly places above all demonic powers, all these divine council members, the just and the unjust. Jesus now reigns and rules over all of them. And God now has raised us up, human beings, above all demonic rulers and powers in Christ by the power of the gospel. God has shown his incredible mercy and power through the church to rulers and to authorities and powers in the heavenly places, And now God is calling us as his visible presence in the world to put on Yahweh's armor as we push back the forces of darkness and reclaim the nations for God. So he says, put on the armor of Yahweh, put on not your armor, it's not like you're just kind of piecemealing your own armor together and trying to do what you can to, to get by in a spiritual battle. He's saying, no, put on the armor that belongs to someone else. Put on God's armor. Put on Yahweh's armor. This is what, this is what he's getting at. In fact, we have an early church father, Jerome, he, he talks about it this way. He says, from what we read of the Lord, our Savior, throughout the Scripture, it is manifestly clear that the whole armor of Christ is the Savior himself. So we see in Scripture, Paul says, put on the armor of God. In other places, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Cover yourself with Christ. In order to be victorious, we must put on the armor of God, but we must do so because we also have a vicious enemy. It's not because we just want to arm ourselves in cool-looking weaponry. We have someone that's fighting against us. Peter tells us about the identity of this enemy, He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. Paul says that this devil, the one who is against us, he has schemes. I don't know about you, but I don't typically use the word scheming unless I'm joking. Scheming doesn't seem very threatening, but strategy does. The devil is strategic in the way that he approaches temptation. He is strategic in the way he wants to destroy your life. And it's important to note that the devil's greatest strategy is not the flashy, in-your-face kind of supernatural encounters that you watch in movies. Now, there are two types of a demonic attack typically we recognize as Christians. The first is extraordinary attacks by the demonic. And you, you hear of things like oppression. And this includes mental and spiritual bombardment by the enemy or obsession, internal torment or, or sometimes physical attack from invisible forces, infestation, attacks related to particular places or something like that. And then also what's commonly called possession, but basically is different levels of physical control over a person's body by the demonic. Now, that's the extraordinary ways in which the, the devil works. This is not the common way in which the devil works. The most common way that all of us experience is the ordinary attack. Temptation. Internal temptation. External temptation. As he seeks to control and and influence you so that you would make decisions that, that go against the gospel. That reject Christ. We live in a world that is broken and that is decidedly against God and His plan, and that is always wanting us to fail and fall prey to the temptations of the devil. And our enemy's wish is for our harm. But Peter says we must be sober, we must be watchful. So, therefore, be careful in this world. Arm yourself with Christ, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, get into the Word, memorize Scripture. Obey Scripture as you memorize it. But then be careful. Be careful of the kind of of images or stories that you put into your mind. Be careful the places that you choose to visit or the friends that you seek to invest in. Be careful of the hobbies and the relationships that you place so much value upon. Be careful of the words that you use and, and the flashes of anger that you just disregard as though they're not that important. Be careful of the secret pride in your heart and the silent judgment you level at those around you. All of those things are chinks in the armor. Gaps in your holiness that the evil one will exploit. In order to be victorious, we must look to Jesus as the source of our strength. We must know our enemy. We must be steadfast also unwavering in our obedience. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, take up The whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. So the battle is on; it's happening. We've entered in, whether we know it or not. It's almost as if you could you could see the scene. Imagine a child walking out onto a field in Pennsylvania, and there's flowers, and there's you know, beautiful things. And so the child is just kind of wandering around in this field. There's such a delightful place out there picking flowers. And all the while, on either side of the field, there are massive armies that have gathered for the purpose of war. And very quickly, very soon, there will be bullets flying over this field. There will be cannon blasts. There will be people running into the field. There will be slaughter upon slaughter. And this child, they do not understand. If they do not know, they will See harm. Friends, whether you know it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you think it's important or not, you are in the middle of that field and there are spiritual forces at work in this world wishing to do you harm. We must be awakened to this idea. Paul says, put on the armor of God. This is a clothing image. He says, take up the armor of God. This is a weapon image. Verse 13, just a couple of words I want you to notice. He says, I want you to put on the whole armor of God. This is really important. Remember, this isn't your armor. This is Yahweh's armor. He says, put on the whole armor. Every piece. Or maybe better put, there should be nothing left of you exposed. You should be completely and utterly hidden in Jesus Christ this is what Paul's getting at in Colossians chapter 3 he says set your minds on things that are above not on things that are of the earth he says for we have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God don't let parts of you be exposed be hidden in Christ another phrase he says is stand firm we are on the battle line together Though we are pressed on every side, though we are tempted to sin, though we are tempted to run, we stand together as the people of God. Feet planted, shields raised, swords drawn for the work of war. This is the entire purpose behind our church covenant. You are covenanted together this is the reason you have Bible study classes. This is the reason for counseling ministries. This is the reason for discipleship mentoring. This is the reason for disaster relief ministry. All of those things are spiritual warfare. There must be an unwavering obedience. But then finally, we must clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Be victorious by clothing yourself in Christ. We see this listing of these different pieces of the armor. Like I said, I think the primary metaphor is he's pointing us to Yahweh's armor that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is a significance to the things that he lists and how he lists them. And so I think that secondary metaphor really is that Roman soldier perhaps that he's seeing on the outside of his cell or something like that. And we see this in verse 14. He talks about the belt of truth. And as a a Roman soldier, an infantryman, uh, this would be a very important piece of the armor of him. The belt, uh, buckled and, and strapped around the waist, held all of the armor in place. It allowed him to fight without distraction, wondering whether things were going to fall out, whether his sword was going to still be there when he needed it. This is the foundation of the Christian's armor, the truth. If we remember what Jesus says about himself, he says that he himself is truth. It helps us understand even more so that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The breastplate of righteousness, Again, we see that in Isaiah 59, to wear the breastplate of righteousness. The the, the breastplate for the soldier covered all of his vital organs so that his chest was covered, his sides were covered, his back was covered. The the breastplate was to slide over the head and had hinges at the side so that nothing could pierce his midsection. And then there was also an apron that would cover down his legs and and all of the places that he could be vulnerable So when we think about our own righteousness, objectively we we wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not ours, he secured it at the cross for us, but then he's also through the power of the Holy Spirit making us righteous through the process of sanctification. We see the shoes of the gospel of peace. This is an advancement piece. Paul, Paul alludes to this advance of the gospel of the kingdom. God, God is reclaiming the nations for himself. We see this in Isaiah chapter 52. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. He says the shield of faith The shield of faith is not like some small round shield, but it's like a door that covers the entire body. And when locked together in combat, these shields work together as a wall. That is the picture of the church. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church. We will advance upon it and be an unstoppable force because of the power of God. The helmet of salvation, the helmet protects the head. He helps us to understand the divine power and deliverance we have already received in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says that we have received God's spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we've been seated with Christ in heaven, that we've been made into a new creation. He tells us that we also ought to pick up the sword of the spirit. This is the primary offensive weapon of spiritual warfare. It's not referring to a broad sword. It's not. Referring to a, a katana blade, it's referring to a short, short sword that's very sharp and pointed at the end. It's very quick and efficient, just like the Word of God is in our life. Even as, as Clancy read that scripture from Hebrews chapter 4 earlier, that it is living and active, that is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Friends, the only way we can be victorious in spiritual conflict is by knowing who our source of strength is. Knowing our enemy, living obedient lives, and by clothing ourselves with Christ himself. And so as I wrap up this morning, I want to leave you with three things to walk away from here today with. The first one is this. To be a Christian is to be a warrior. You are in a spiritual war. All of life is spiritual warfare warfare against your flesh, against the world, or against the devil. And My point is, don't be scared of it. Recognize it. Lean into it, and be strong, Paul says. Secondly, when you get bogged down in life, whether it's circumstances or relationships, when you're troubled by patterns of sin in your life, when you feel like you're under attack, remember what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, don't you remember that you will judge angels? You are not the weak ones. You're in Christ. You are the ones he is raising up to judge the heavenly house. And then back to our story at the very beginning. Unlike David, when he slipped on Saul's armor, over his head and he tried to lift the sword and it was unwieldy and it was almost impossible to use. Yahweh's armor is perfectly sized for you. Perfectly balanced. All of it because, as Paul says, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word from the apostle Paul. We thank you that even in the midst of spiritual war, we can trust and know that you are God and there is no other, that you are mighty, that you give to us strength and power through your Holy Spirit that we might overcome the evil one. God, would these words encourage us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.